Pray with me. God and Father, as we now turn to your word, reflect on this last of the Ten Commandments. Pray that you would be near all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who saves sinners. Amen. So this morning, we are going to talk about the Tenth Commandment, the final one in our series, if you have been with us through this time. But to get there, first we're going to talk about this story we just read, this kind of striking, in many ways, story about Ahab and Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. So first, just some context. Ahab and his wife Jezebel are king and queen of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are not nice people. They led Israel in the worship of false gods and encourage all sorts of immorality and flagrantly break God's law and try to murder the prophets and priests. Um, In our reading today, this is how the author of Kings kind of describes them. He says, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. Like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. So they are kind of the epitome of these bad kings that Israel had. And at the point where this story takes place, Ahab's reign has been established. He's been around for a while. He's just won these military victories over Syria. And while Elijah the prophet has kind of consistently embarrassed him, he's had some time to recover from that. So things are going pretty well for him. But in our story, we read that sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab. So Naboth has this vineyard, and it's got this great location. It's this nice piece of real estate, and Ahab wants it. And initially, he makes what might sound like a fair offer. He says to Naboth, let me have your vineyard for use as a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it is worth. So Ahab says, I want this piece of property, but I'll give you a bigger piece of property, or I'll pay you a fair price for it. But Naboth replies, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now we need to pause right there, because this interchange is one that we almost never understand what's actually going on. Because that seems like a pretty reasonable offer for Ahab, right? It seems like, okay, like that's not bad. But already there's some issues because in ancient Israel, unlike in our world, um, property is not private. Um, All of the the promised land is understood as belonging to the Lord, and he divides it up between different tribes, and then within those tribes he divides it up between different families, and it is explicitly forbidden in Israel to sell your property to other people. For example, from Leviticus 25-23, the land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So um, it is permissible in ancient Israel to like rent out your land for a period of time or something, but when Ahab comes to Naboth and says, give me your property, right, sell it to me, and I'll give you another piece of property, he's disobeying the Lord. And so when you see Naboth's reply, read it in that light, and he says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors, right? So Naboth's trying to be faithful, to this command of God, that this is his property and he's supposed to keep it within his family, and Ahab's trying to get him to disobey him. Then notice how Ahab responds to the rejection. It says that he went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I won't do this. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. 
And you just, that's supposed to be a funny picture, right? You're supposed, it's, what the author of Kings is making fun of Ahab, right? You're supposed to picture him like pouting and, you know, and throwing this fit about how he doesn't get this. But he's, you know, this child throwing a tantrum, laying in bed, refusing to eat. And then Jezebel, his wife, comes to find out what's going on. And I'll just read you their exchange. But um, she came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard. Or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Notice already how he's kind of distorting the conversation, right? To, to not recognize the fairness of what Naboth's doing. But then Jezebel, his wife, says, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She says, stop pouting, you're the king, so act like it. And then she says she'll take care of things. Very briefly, what she does is she writes letters and has people hire false witnesses and accuse Naboth of blasphemy, and he ends up being stoned to death. And so Jezebel goes and tells Ahab, good news, I've taken care of this Naboth problem. And then in verse 16, we read that when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. So he seems to win, although then the text goes on to make clear that God has other ideas. He sends his prophet Elijah to threaten this judgment on Ahab, and it is a very dire judgment. It's important, there's that little parenthetical explanation of how bad Ahab and Jezebel are. It is important to recognize that this judgment is for their whole sin, with this kind of being just the last straw. It's not simply this one event. But this judgment is proclaimed, and surprisingly, Ahab repents. Um, not fully. He does not turn from idolatry and, you know, return to the fear of the Lord in full obedience, but he does um, humble himself before God. And so God modifies the judgment a little bit. He says, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled my, himself, I will not bring this disaster on his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. If you keep reading in the book of Kings, in 2 Kings, that ends up happening. So here is the question I want to ask from that story, which is what was the sin of Ahab that leads ultimately to this kind of judgment? What was the ultimate sin he committed? Now certainly there are a lot of sins in this passage, right? Especially as things go on. There's you know, people bearing false witness, and there's, um, there's murder, and there's stealing. There's all this stuff that we've talked about in these other commandments, so there's really obviously sinful stuff. But the way this story is told makes clear that we're supposed to recognize that the root sin in this passage comes long before all of those things ultimately happen. What's clear is that the root sin in our passage is coveting. Our start, that story starts with Ahab desiring this vineyard that he is not supposed to have, and his reaction when he is shot down and is not able to have it. And the way this story plays out, we're supposed to recognize that it is the way he lives in that desire and lets it control him that ultimately leads to all of the terrible stuff that comes later. It is this root of coveting that leads to that death and corruption. And that, of course, brings us to this commandment. So in Exodus 20, let's read it in verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
All right, so what does that mean? Well, first we need to ask, what does that word covet mean? And in Hebrew, that's actually just the word desire. There's not a technical word for coveting in Hebrew. It's just the word, you know, you desire something, you want something. That's the word that's used. But we do need to recognize that the context of this verse is, make, we're supposed to see it's a certain kind of desire. Because desire itself is not a bad thing in Scripture. There's things that we're called to desire, like the Lord, and, um, and we're called to desire appropriately the things in this world. It's not wrong that I, um, you know, when I'm hungry, that I desire to eat a meal, right? Those are appropriate desires. Desire, in the Tenth Commandment, is modified by this list of things that all importantly belong to our neighbor and not to us. We desire our neighbor's house, not being content with our own. We desire our neighbor's spouse or his servants or his oxen or donkeys, which maybe just put in like car and riding lawnmower or something like that, right, in our context. But, um, but, but all these things that belong to our neighbor. And then because scripture knows that we love loopholes, it goes on to say, and also anything else that belongs to your neighbor, right? To make clear that you can't be like, well, it's not on this list. Um, the sin does not rest in the desiring, but the object of our desire. To flesh it out, coveting means to unlawfully or inappropriately desire something that is not ours. That is the sort of desire that is in view. It's to, in a, it's to unlawfully or inappropriately desire something that is not ours. So not all desires are forbidden by this commandment, but a bunch of desires are. When we reflect on that, it also helps us recognize the way that this commandment kind of works its way outward, right? While it gives this specific list of things like a house or servants, like all of the commandments, it's a call for us to take this specific case and then kind of see how it spirals out. And so it includes, as it says, everything else. And that means, first of all, that it includes intangible things, right? I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's house, but this would also include coveting my neighbor's gifts and abilities or situation in life or health, things that aren't as simple and tangible as possessions. Likewise, it includes our desire for things that ought not be ours, even if we can't simplistically boil it down to one neighbor that has it. Sometimes we feel like we're innocent of coveting because we just want the thing in the abstract, right? I just want, like, all the money or all the recognition. <laughs> and, um, and while obviously there's not one person I have in mind when I'm thinking about it, that is still a desire for something that does not appropriately belong to me. It is still um, a desire for something that ought not be mine. And so it includes all of those abstract sorts of coveting as well. Indeed, that starts to call us to recognize that ultimately what this commandment is about is this is the commandment um, that is meant to cause to reflect on our sinful desires, our wrong desires for things that we don't have a right to. Ultimately, all of that is caught up within that category of coveting. But given all of that, there are a couple of specific things that we need to realize as we talk about this commandment. And the first is that we just need to talk about the fact that according to this commandment, coveting is sin. It does lead to other sins as well, but coveting itself is viewed as sin. Coveting plays a role in humanity's original sin. There in the garden, the serpent questions God's word, but then he adds this enticement to, to Eve as he talks to her. He says, you will not surely die if you eat of the fruit, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God 
knowing good and evil, which is to say, here is this thing that does not belong to you, this knowledge that properly belongs to God, but desire and feel that desire for that knowledge. And sure enough, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You can almost hear that process working it out, right? Well, part of the temptation is about mistrusting God and just wanting the fruit. A significant part of the temptation is desiring this thing that God did not give Adam and Eve, this sort of divine understanding of evil. And so it is that desire that ultimately plays out in their sin. The New Testament is full of warnings against covetousness as well. Take this from Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or from the Apostle Paul, stressing that coveting is a big deal, just as much so as more obvious sins, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. In that verse, he's really taking one sort of obvious sin that people are going to agree, oh yeah, I understand that that's sinful, and then he takes covetousness and puts it alongside it, right, in order to try to emphasize the gravity of that sin. Maybe the best New Testament text to help us understand coveting comes from James. This is how he explains our wrong desires. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That passage and that process James describes is actually really helpful to us as we try to understand coveting. Because let me just acknowledge, we say all of this, and even though we might kind of agree that the Bible says it, there's a question we have, which is, wait, if coveting is just a desire for what's not rightfully mine, like, how can a desire that I feel be sin, right? So let me try to answer that. Let me walk through that step by step. So there's three steps, kind of, from James in this process of sinning. The first step that he describes is temptation, right? Which is just the experience we have when we feel a desire for something that ought not be ours. All of us are tempted all the time. In fact, most of the time we probably even don't recognize it because the desire just comes and we don't even name the thing. Whenever we have an urge to do something contrary to the will of God, or whenever we have an urge to not do something that God's will would call us to do, whenever that happens, that's temptation. Okay, that's the first step. Um, and the first question we should ask is, is temptation sin? And the answer to that is, it depends on what you mean. It is certainly a sinful desire, right? Temptation is not good. The thing we're desiring in that moment is wrong. But we are not, when we are tempted, in sin already ourselves. Jesus was tempted right? In every way, just as we are, the author of Hebrews says. So Jesus was tempted, but Jesus did not sin. All right, that's the first step. Then there's a third step. We're going to skip over the middle for a minute, and that is desire enacted, right? That is outward sin. That is the sort of actions that we clearly identify as sinful. Um, and obviously that part of the thing is sin. That's what we tend to think of, right? But there's this thing in the middle that James pictures when he talks about desire kind of like being fully grown in this process, and that is um, desire entertained. That is um, what happens in between the two, which is to say this, when we feel that temptation, what scripture would call us to do 
is to immediately refuse it. That's the imagery scripture uses. It says flee temptation, fight temptation, kill temptation, right? Those are the, the, the ways we're supposed to respond. And there's this thing that happens when, temp- when we feel tempted that isn't yet the outward action of sin, but that is not refusing it either. It's entertaining. Now, sometimes that can be a really short process, right? Like when you have the urge to say something hurtful, and if you don't immediately refuse it, um, the words come out, you know, and that, that's enough entertaining, and then you say the thing. But other times it can be this sort of long process. That's what, that's what Ahab is pictured as going through, right? He sees this vineyard every day, he desires it, he tries to get the guy to sell it to him, it won't. He lays pouting on his bed, just turning over this desire he has for this thing that is not his. And the important thing to understand, the reason that process is important to understand, is because instinctively we want to put the line of sin here. Um, We want to say that it's only when it comes out in our actions that it's sinful. But scripture does not treat sin that way. Instead, scripture would put the line here. It would say that the point at which we feel temptation and do not refuse it, we have already entered into sin. Now, yes, it hasn't come out in our actions, and in one sense, that's better in the sense that it's less destructive, right? I mean, the entertaining the desire to, to kill someone is less destructive in the world than taking the action, but it is not less sinful in another sense. Indeed, it is often a product of our cowardice, not our righteousness, that we don't end up taking that desire and putting it into action. So in Scripture, entertaining sinful desire is sin, not just acting on it. Coveting, therefore, is sin. And if you haven't felt it yet, that really highlights the reality that coveting as a commandment takes direct aim at our hearts. All through the Ten Commandments, we've discussed this idea that while most of the commandments focus on an outward action, we are called to recognize that they also are meant to be applied inwardly to our hearts and desires. Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the other ways that we know that's true is that the, the Ten Commandments, while many of the commandments focus on outward actions, the first and the last commandment focus on our hearts. The first commandment says you don't have any other gods in the presence of the Lord. You don't have any idols or false gods. And of course that means outwardly, but that clearly includes our hearts, right? In our hearts, don't worship as God anything that isn't the Lord. And the last commandment says don't entertain any desire for things that aren't rightfully yours. Again, the heart is directly in view in that commandment. In fact, interestingly, Scripture seems to see a link between that first and last commandment. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says this. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now that passage, we don't have time to go into it. That's actually a very interesting passage because it's doing the same thing we just talked about, where it starts with this outward sin and kind of works inward through the process. But what's striking for us here is at the end, he says covetousness, and then he equates it with idolatry. How is that the case? Well, on the one hand, it's because idolatry in Scripture breeds covetousness. All coveting ultimately stems from a lack of trust in God. God has distributed the things in the world the way that they are, and when I look at what I have and what my neighbor has and say, no, that stuff should be mine— That is actually um, a denial of God's godhood, right? A failure to respect God as the Lord. But at the same time, coveting also breeds idolatry. 
When I want what I don't have, I cannot turn to the Lord to give it to me if it's not rightfully mine. And so my temptation then is to turn to false gods and to say, okay, well, how about, you know, can, can you idol? And remember, idolatry includes all those intangible things like money and fame. Can you give me this thing that I want? So coveting and idolatry are linked and are both sins of the heart. And all of that should remind us that when we think about sin and when we think about fighting sin, we have to recognize that that's a battle that starts in our hearts. We cannot simply seek to appear outwardly righteous and think that that's enough. John Owen, the great Puritan divine, um, he puts it like this in his incredible book, The Mortification of Sin, which means, mortification means the killing of sin. He talks about how we need to be renewed inwardly if we're going to properly mortify sin, not just outwardly. And here's how he describes that. He says, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who does not kill sin in this way, meaning inwardly, takes no steps towards his journey's end. He who finds no opposition from it and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification is at peace with it, not dying to it. Which is to say that if you entertain sin in your heart, if you're not opposing it, if you're not walking over the bellies of your sinful desires, which is Owen's great image, right? Then you've already, in a sense, surrendered to it. And of course, that reality um, also means that covetousness, like all of the other commandments, but maybe especially, convicts us all. If that is what coveting is, and that's what's commanded, that this commandment opposes, we are all guilty of that sin. That was the experience of the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Romans, in chapter 7, Paul recounts how he experiences ultimately coming to see his sin and his need for Christ. Paul was a Pharisee. He was this super outwardly righteous dude. And he, when, when you take the Ten Commandments in an outward sense, right, when you're just talking about like murdering and committing adultery in an outward sense, he's like, yeah, I've nailed it. But then he says this um, in Romans 7. He's talking about the law and this question of whether the law is good or bad. But he makes this comment. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul seems to be saying that he, he takes this law and he thinks he's got it nailed, and then he reads this 10th commandment. And he's like, oh, coveting is a sin? <laughs> and he suddenly realizes this, and so he goes on to say that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now those verses are tricky. We talked about them back when we preached through Romans 7. But the thing to realize is Paul is not describing the objective status. He's not saying, well, I didn't sin at all, and then I read the law, and then suddenly I started sinning. What he's describing is his subjective experience. What he's saying is that I looked at myself and was like, I'm great. I'm full of life. I'm this really righteous dude. And then he reads God's law. He reads this commandment against coveting. And suddenly he's like, coveting is everywhere in my heart. Suddenly he recognizes his sin. In fact, that, he says, is the point of this commandment and the law. He goes on a little later in Romans 7 to answer that question, is the law bad? He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? 
He says, by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The purpose of the commandment is to reveal our sin to us, to show it to be sin, and to show that we are sinful beyond measure. So Paul's saying, Scripture elsewhere compares God's law to a mirror. And what it means by that is that there are days when I am, like I'm going about my business and I'm feeling pretty good, right? I feel like a pretty cool, you know, nailing it guy. I've had some meetings and done some work and, you know, I feel like I'm great. And then I, you know, I go into the bathroom and I look in the mirror and suddenly I realize that I've got like a cowlick sticking up and like half of my collar is up and half of it is down or like my butt, you know, my shirt's buttoned wrong or something. I see this in the mirror and I realize that that's been true all day. In these meetings, as I'm, you know, talking with people, as I'm feeling really cool, that's true. And what Paul's saying is that that doesn't make the mirror bad, right? That doesn't make the law bad for showing that to us. We have the problem, but we don't see it until we look in that mirror of God's perfect law. So this convicts all of us. What do we do with that? Well, of course, in the first place, like in each of these sermons, Part of the answer, the core of the answer, is that we look to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. Right? Christianity is not a religion for good people. The whole point of God's law, while we're called to obey it, is to reveal to us that we are sinful people and then call us to trust in Jesus and experience his grace. The law is meant to humble us so that we accept the gospel. But while we're going to talk more about that in just a minute, I want to pause on that last thought. Because it also illustrates something really crucial to how we think about coveting and struggling against it. The law is meant to humble us and then call us to look to Jesus. And that's a powerful truth because the antidote to our coveting is not trying not to covet, right? That's people read this community and they're like, I'm just going to try not to covet. And it just doesn't work. The antidote to coveting is humility. You might have noticed at the end of our story with Ahab, that even though he does face serious judgment for his rebellion against God, God shows him mercy because of his humility. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and mourns this sin of Naboth's vineyard. And so God said, as we read, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster on his death. Humility, being the ending of that story about Ahab's sin and coveting, is not an accident. But to understand why, we need to step back for a minute first and explain what we mean by the word humility. Our problem with humility, sort of like our problem with sin, is that we tend to hear it only in an outward sense. When we think about people being humble, when we think about being humble, we think that means that, like, when someone compliments us, we should be like, oh, well, you know, that's not, that's not really true. We feel like it should just be that we kind of avoid praise and appear, you know, ask a lot of questions and appear a certain way. Um, and here's the issue with that. Some of those things can be signs of humility, right? I mean, being humble can, at times, result in us being meek or trying to deflect praise. But those things can also just be a cover for pride, right? Sometimes humble people act that way. Clever, proud people always act that way, right? Those outward actions are not what humility rests in. Instead, humility in Scripture is a matter of the heart. Paul lists it among the heart virtues of a Christian in Colossians 3. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. More specifically, humility is a way of thinking about God and the world and ourselves accurately. Take this from Romans 12. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So being humble means thinking correctly about ourselves, right? Having a sober and appropriate and right judgment of who we are. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that we have a sober judgment and an accurate review of ourselves in relation to God. That he is God and that we are not God. That's the first error of pride, right? We end up thinking that we're more than we are in relation to God. We're as smart as God. We're as powerful as God. We know better than him. And that's what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that happens whenever pride leads us into sin. And then if we have that right view of God, then that also causes us to think rightly of ourselves as creatures. We were created with certain strengths and certain limitations, with certain abilities and certain needs and weaknesses. And pride is what happens when we deny that, when we pretend like we aren't creatures like we are, right? We think, well, I don't need this, or I'm not weak in this way, or, you know, we, we, we believe that we're greater than we are. And then as a result of that, pride also causes us to wrongly view others, and humility calls us to rightly view others as God's creatures, too means when we look around, we have this appropriate view of ourselves with our strengths and our limits, and we likewise have an appropriate view of others with their strengths and their limits, and we don't demand that they be more than they are, and we don't treat ourselves as more important than them. Which is to say, humility is not pretending like we are unimportant. It is understanding our proper level of importance, understanding the, correctly the reality of God's greatness and the world that he's placed us in. This last week, um, we, our, my family went to Arizona for a few days. Um, stayed with friends, but we drove up to see the Grand Canyon because Elizabeth had never seen it, and so it seemed like a good thing to do. And so here's the thing, though, about the Grand Canyon, right? When you're standing next to the Grand Canyon, you do not have to pretend like it's a big deal and you aren't, right? You don't have to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not that great when you're standing next to the Grand Canyon, right? Because nobody is looking out at this, like, horizon-spanning chasm, and it's like, hey, look at me, right? Uh, and the reason for that is because in that moment, we're kind of forced by the grandeur of this piece of creation to actually feel that reality and recognize that that's true. Humility is having an understanding of God and of the world that instills that sense in us always, Right? We just always have that appropriate sense of our place in relation to the greatness of God and our place in the world he's made. And so that causes us to behave in a way that, um, yeah, that recognizes that. Here's why all of that matters. Here's why we're talking about humility. Because coveting is really desire that flows out of pride. Coveting is always a result of pride. It's pridefully thinking too much of ourselves in relation to God. It's saying, I know better than you, Lord, what I ought to have. I know better than you, Lord, how the world ought to work. And coveting is always pridefully thinking too much of ourselves. It is refusing to recognize our limits and saying, no, like I should have more and I should be able to do more and I should have all of this stuff for myself. And if that's true, 
then the main way we fight against that coveting in our hearts is by seeking humility and fighting against pride. That obviously then leaves us with the question, well, how do we do that? How do we get more humble? And in some ways, that is a much bigger question than I can answer as we wrap up this sermon this morning. Um, I'm just going to, here's two books that are great about humility. If that's something you want to think about more deeply, Andrew Murray's book is a classic. It's more than 100 years old, and it's great. Um, I've recently found Humble Roots by Hannah Anderson to be great. So if that's a topic you really want to pursue, there are some ways to do it. Or talk to me, and we'll talk about it again in another sense. But here's what I want to offer this morning as we close, which is one way that our discussion this morning actually helps create that kind of humility. See, the process we described a couple minutes ago, where God's law reveals our sin to us and reveals our need, and then we turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him for grace, as we do that daily, over and over, that actually trains us in humility. When this commandment convicts us of our sin, gives us this tangible reality that we are not as good as we think we are. It shows us some of our limitations and weaknesses. And when this commandment calls us then, because as we see our sin, to trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and mercy, that calls us to recognize that God is much greater than we are, that we have to come to him with open hands, needy for grace, rather than pretending that we are his equals and he cut some kind of deal. The first piece of the puzzle of humility is recognizing that God freely saves us in Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve it, not because we're good people, but simply out of his free love. And our struggle with coveting um, and experiencing God's grace teaches us to have that understanding that that's something we need. At the same time, as we experience that and as we experience God's grace, the more we live into those realities, the more we become humble. And remarkably, the more that covetousness begins to lose its grip off. The more we recognize that I am a sinner, I'm saved by God's grace and love alone, the more we're able to look around at the world and say, yes, you know what? Like, it is okay that I don't have everything. It is okay that my neighbor is blessed as well, because I don't deserve anything, right? Everything I have is a gift. And that breeds a spirit in our heart that actually serves as armor when sinful desire would seek to turn our eyes towards sinful things. The more that pride um, loses its power over our souls, the more we are brought into that conformity with this command. Let's pray. Father, teach us humility. Thank you for your forgiveness for the ways that we often lack. Convict our hearts of all the ways that our desires lead us astray, and speak to us of the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray all this in his name. Amen.